I see you shiver with anticipation. Welcome to Art Takes. I'm Philip J. Mellon. I have a trio of podcasts I put together, and you are here, Art Takes. Art Takes is an artist recording platform where I can do whatever I want. The other podcasts, Artcast, a more traditional format of visual artist interviews, and the mixed media tapes, visual artist talks based on specific subjects. Whereas Art Takes is a free-form podcast project where I invite artists to come on and talk things such as collaboration, special projects, love of a particular musician or band, and other topics extending from their studio practice. So this episode I talked to Nick LeBlanc, a writer out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Nick shares a bunch about his many projects and even does some reading which leads to a rich discussion on identity, sparked by his piece, On Being, a non-fiction essay from his own Taking Shits on Myself in 3D. He also answers a set of questions I ask him about the writing process and practice. Please stay tuned later in the episode for info about some of the creative projects going on in New Bedford that celebrate poetry and theater productions brought to the community. Oh, and you'll also hear sound collage work by Nick mixed in throughout this episode. So thank you for joining us. Oh, and some swear words creep in, but just a little friendly heads up on that. Okay, let's begin. Be prepared to space out. You say it, Nick LeBlanc, and not, not Nick LeBlanc. Yeah, I say LeBlanc. LeBlanc. It's just like a, a, it really doesn't matter because everybody says things differently, and right. I'm not one who's very concerned with those type of things. But uh, it, just the Americanized version of it, sort of how I was, you know, brought up LeBlanc rather than LeBlanc. Right, right. Do you know uh, Gwen LeBlanc or no? no uh, very well could be related. My my grandfather had a ton of brothers and then his father had a ton of brothers okay. so it's like a there's a wide net where i don't know many people who yeah, like yeah, yeah. are actually probably related oh interesting she lives in taunton she lives oh, not really? too far from here wouldn't be surprised yeah she hangs out in new bedford a lot well mm-hmm. more more than your average i guess tontonian yeah you know? tontonian yeah. <laughs> yeah sounds like a star wars term <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, that's funny because I, I actually called up and read one of my poems online, the Poetry Super Highway. I think mm-hmm. it was. You have you heard of that? Uh, no. No. I'm a really bad poet. I don't know shit. Oh, I, well, <laughs> yeah. you'll find out through this that you, how bad I am. <laughs> um, but so I forget how I even came across it. I just some random find, and and then so he had a a live show, and 
you call in and I was like, oh, I'm from Taunton, but that's not how you pronounce it from here. But yeah, I, yeah. I, got, I stepped into my, oh, this is a foreigner, so yeah. I got to pronounce it the way that he would probably pronounce it. And he said, wait a minute, like Tauntaun? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're having this cosmic like connection, you know, over Star Wars. It, yeah. It no, we, we pronounce it with a hiccup in the name Taunton. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. As if there's an apostrophe in the middle of it. <laughs> Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. I think, based on what happened to me this morning, sure. I think if you don't mind, would you mind reading on on being and like? Not at all. I'm not. I'm probably gonna take this out, but mm-hmm. if you wanted to, like, I don't know if you can you intro that somehow or like yeah, just so but, people know what. Where should it's I coming tell from? a little bit about the book? Like yeah, that that could be cool. Okay, and I I'll think talk about that. I think that's gonna be nice because I thought because you talk about identity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and then that. doing the interview like is giving you an identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? totally. Yeah. So this this book that I'd written is called uh, "Taking Shits on Myself in 3D," yeah, and it was a collection of non I call it nonfiction, but nonfiction personal essays that I kind of put together since about 2014. So over the last five years, yeah, and um, a lot of them I, I I I had them and there was a decent chunk of them and I wanted to do something with it, but I was kind of unsure what to do with it because I didn't really like some of them and but I thought that there was something important about preserving them so i brainstormed and tried to find a different way to kind of serve it on a plate that i could simultaneously comment on it as well as put it out there and so i'd kind of be having the simultaneous experience with the reader of giving them something i may have written five years ago as well as my commentary now on that thing and which is why i came up with the in 3d part and (laughs) the, the taking shits on myself was just coming from a place of especially the early stuff i kind of ravage it a little bit okay where i kind of take it apart as i go and also part of the purpose was to kind of do a commentary on how even the most truthful nonfiction usually has a heaping dose of bullshit as a part of it and it's kind of unavoidable to uh what i what i mean is that there's a no matter who the author is, whether it's documentary or whether it's nonfiction essay or whether it's whatever, you get a huge dose of who it, who they are. Yeah. No matter how objective they're trying to be, so I tried to be a little bit meta with that. And oh, that cool. was kind of the idea. So when I read through this one here, this is called "On Being." If I'm not mistaken, it's from 2015. Um, where the footnotes are, um, I'll probably just comment them in text. So I'll say footnote and then sort of give that footnote through it. So this one's called On Being, and there's a footnote immediately. (laughs) There was a small art zine that existed in New Bedford for a while. The woman who ran it liked my work and eventually asked me to do introductory pieces for each issue. This is the first of those pieces which I did for her. On Being. I don't want to be anyone. I don't want to be anything. In fact, I'm terribly scared of becoming something at all. Footnote. Which is why I was apparently trying so hard not to become a good writer. In 25 years, I've acquired more titles than I think I can handle. Son, musician, boyfriend, athlete, neighbor, cousin, weird guy who worked at the aquarium, ex-boyfriend, artist, acquaintance, etc. Footnote. And now I'm also a husband, author, union rep, and certified earth science educator in the state of Massachusetts. Titles seem to accumulate. They're almost like mistakes. I just want to be me. I want my life to reflect my identity alone. I do not want to be seen as something to someone else. Just view me as me, Nick as Nick. 
don't think about me. Don't worry how I fit into the community. Don't question why I choose to write at a coffee shop rather than in my own apartment. Don't look at the shoes I'm wearing or the backpack I'm carrying. Don't smell the cologne I wear or think about where my hair is parted. Footnote. Here I'm referencing an article I read that explained that JFK had tons of research done into public perception. He found that parting your hair on one side, specifically so that the longer section falls toward your right ear, significantly changed the way you are perceived by strangers. For some unknown reason, having the part on the right side of your head, where the long section of hair falls toward your left ear, left people with a more negative impression. I think it had something to do with the way we read faces and had some connection to reading words from left to right. If I really gave a shit, I'd find the article and leave the reference here, like what footnotes are supposed to be used for. But that ain't me, babe. You have access to the internet. You can figure it out. Don't call me a butcher because you see me cut meat. Don't call me a writer because you're reading my words. Don't call me anything at all. Only see me as Nick. Footnote. In case you forgot my name, there it is again. <laughs> An entity. A small freckle on the ass of existence farted into existence some two and a half decades ago. A biological result of pure happenstance. A byproduct of the universal chaos that we deformed, mostly hairless, domesticated primates attempt to so desperately avoid. I want my identity to be mine and mine alone. I want it to reflect my feelings and my thoughts. I want it to show how being beaten up by the older kids in my block as a child helped shape my views on pacifism, survival, and cruelty. Footnote. I have a particularly bad memory of one of these incidents where someone had thrown a snowball directly at my face and knocked my glasses off. I picked them up and struggled to clean the melting snow from them. I remember I had on those cheapo, one-size-fits-all black gloves that immediately become sopping wet as soon as they touch the snow. I ran over to the kids that had done it and grabbed a huge pile of snow that I immediately shoved into his face. He pushed me back and I started swinging at him, connecting with his face with tears welling up in my eyes. Another friend from the street separated us and I ran back up into my apartment and cried. What did I learn from that incident? Don't try to clean your glasses with wet gloves. I wanted to show how the strange relationship between my loving parents fostered a deep curiosity and in the inherent peculiarity and damning comfort of monogamy. I wanted to show how I find small life-saving grains of elusive hope lying at the bottom of the darkest pits of my depression. I want to be me, just me, a collection of matter and experience gathered through my existence and shaped by my own hand. I want to be able to say I relied on no one and nothing and was able to define myself through the accumulated wisdom of my own selfish understanding. I want these things, but I don't think I can ever have them. No matter how deep I dive into myself, no matter what stone I turn or what dark alleyway of my conscious I illuminate, I always find something or someone else. I can never be truly alone in my identity. I shout into the void. Am I really all the things that are outside of me? Footnote. I stole this from Animal Collective. The reply? The darkness around us is deep. Footnote. I stole this from William Stafford's A Ritual to Read to Each Other. It's scary to admit that what happens outside of us can shape what we are and who we become. I don't want to be a result of the bullies who punched me in, in my stomach because I was a lonely fat kid who wore glasses and got good grades. I don't want my parents' relationship to play a part in how I shape my own romantic experience, and I don't want depression to define me. None of us want that. We deserve more, man. What's even scarier is figuring out that your identity is inextricably linked with the communities that you find yourself a part of. Acknowledging this feels like giving up a part of yourself. 
I don't mean community in the sense of a neighborhood or a population of humans in a given locale. I mean community in the third definition of the word. A group sharing common characteristics or interests that is perceived or perceives itself as distinct in some respect from the rest of society. This confusion begins at birth, really. In most circumstances, each human is the product of an effort between two other humans. Immediately, you're born with two identities. Your exterior identity, that which those who created you view you as, and your internal identity, that which you find yourself to be. Things only get more and more complicated from there. A certain solace can be found in the recognition that our fellow humans, one of the largest communities which we are all a part of, are all going through something at least vaguely similar. I think that I, I suppose that's what the void meant when it replied to my existential quandary, the darkness around us is deep. We are all confused. We are all struggling. Luckily, there is no final punctuation mark on one's identity. There's always room for growth and development. Even after our bodies expire, the way we are perceived can change. History is an example of this. Footnote. A friend of mine read this piece when it appeared in the local zine and sent me a very nice message about his response to it. He thought it did a good job of explaining something he'd struggle with as well, and it made him happy to know that there were other people out there feeling similar things. That was one of my personal favorite responses that someone's had to my work. When he shared that it made the two of us closer, it made me feel especially connected to him. It provided some context for me as to who he was when I wasn't seeing him running the very public business with which he was a co-owner. A few months or a year after he sent me that message, he up and left the city to move to another part of the country. Eventually, he returned and started a family. When he left, many people were surprised. Because, we'd, because we had just connected over this shared neurotic experience, it made sense to me that he could just disappear and reset. Reset himself as well as other people's perceptions of him. Best of luck to you, fellow human, in your struggle to become whole. Now please excuse me while I shift identities from the guy writing in the corner of the coffee shop to the guy who buys another coffee because a fly just landed and died in the one he was drinking. Footnote. That fly had probably drowned himself after reading some of this drivel. Great. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I read it a few times. The word identity, if it doesn't pop up more than once, at least it's... Uh ones that seems to make sense and like is important i think identity is a hard one to kind of put your finger on yeah because identity is a combination of a few things identity your sense of identity comes from your accumulation of your own personal experiences and then your subjective view of those personal experiences yeah but it also comes from your interactions with people who are around you yeah. and then sort of witnessing how they respond to you or hearing how they communicate about you either to yourself or to someone else. So yeah. I'm not so sure that identity is a, a thing. I don't think it can exist. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of those things where the harder you chase it and the more you try to pin it down, yeah, yeah. the farther away you get from the thing which you were trying to pin down. Yeah. You know? Is so, it like, is there couldn't just be one? No, it's impossible. Yeah. I think that it's infinite. You know, right. every single person has a different idea of as who somebody is. Yeah, yeah. And even within yourself, depending on your situation, I think we have a infinite number of ideas about who we are. Yeah, it's funny. I had a a, a therapist with it within a break of my other therapist, my normal therapist, mm -hmm. and she said uh, there was a quote. She always loved to pull out you know things to think about, and one of them was like, uh, "What people think of me is none of my business," <laughs> and or it could be also just shifted a little bit to say like what people. Um, not so much think of me, but 
because I tend to think of that as being like a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm. And, but say how they would describe you as none of my business could also be another way to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's important and that's probably a healthy mindset to take on. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, the, the traditional stereotype we have of like a jock or something, yeah. a guy with all this self-confidence or whatever, and we sort of associate him with being stupid. I think right. part of the reason we associate him with being stupid is because to not worry about how other people are seeing you or to have that level of confidence implies that you either have to be stupid or you have to be Superman, you know? Yeah, yeah. And because no one's Superman, I think we sort of identify with confidence sometimes as stupidity. Wow. You know okay. what I mean? Because it, it, it's hard to have confidence. Yeah. You know, and it, not care about And not care about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think a healthy mindset through my own work in therapy and those kind of things is that you have to realize that confidence, I think, is found in confidence of how you feel. Yeah, yeah. Not so much about whatever type of validation or or perspective someone else might have of you. Right, right. What What is the alternative to being linked to being called something, do you think? Immediately, I think of um, certain artists. I think of someone like uh, David Bowie, or I think of another David, like David Lynch, right? Yeah. Bowie sort of escaped identity by adopting identities, right? Okay, yeah. Where, or who is actually David Bowie? I forget what his real name is, but who is, who is that guy who plays David Bowie, right? Yeah, yeah. You sort of avoid that because you're so busy seeing him as like the thin white duke or like you know, whoever, whatever character you want to pick. So I think yeah. or Bob Dylan does the same thing. And so I think you can avoid identity that way. But I think you can also avoid identity by doing something like David Lynch, where he's a guy whose work is so singular, it mm. feels. And, it's, and it has so much... It, people can discuss it in a thousand different ways, but when you ask him about it, he, he avoids giving any information right so yeah. you can avoid developing an identity of people finding out who you are by getting them to focus on that which you do or that which you create you know it's like someone yeah. in their instagram profile saying like oh i'm a father like i give them the essay like i'm a father i'm a i'm a son i'm a man of god or whatever yeah. right it's, so i don't think you can really avoid identity because i think it, i think we're sort of stuck um based on just the way that our human brains work we're stuck trying to push identity onto other people. So it's almost like this inescapable thing where we have to sort of quantify or genrefy, like, yeah, yeah. or qualify everything. So right. I don't know if it's avoidable. The only way to avoid it is by avoiding people. <laughs> and even then, once you start avoiding people, you know, that can do its own number on your, your own psyche. Yeah. Because then you're the guy who avoids people, so you have an identity. You always have one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess maybe we can get into some questions right now, if that's cool. Sure. Like, as far as what I put together for the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Nick, for those who don't know, where are you writing out of? Um, I'm from New Bedford. Yeah. And so I do most of my writing when I'm in New Bedford. Rarely when I travel do I, or like, you know, go on vacation somewhere. I rarely do work when I do that. Because I just do it when I get back. Yeah, cool. Do you think? Um, do you ever take notes when you're out and um, on trips or whatever? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time, if if my phone's on me, I'll just like put a note in there for myself, and then a lot of time I'll forget what that note means. Yeah, yeah. And I'll come back and I'll read it, and I'll say the note will be very vague. Mm-hmm. It'll say like plastic knives as a metaphor for, for, you know, 
uncertainty or something. <laughs> and I'll be like, I have no idea what, you know. What but I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to like ask you if, if you could share what some of your early writing experiences were. Sure. Sure. It's funny. Uh, if I go back as far as I can think, probably the first, the first things I ever did were write and make music. Even when I was a kid, I loved music, loved listening to it. I loved reading. So I would just write things down. Or even before I had the tools or the knowledge as to how to make sounds, I would just sort of goof around with stuff. Yeah. And uh, the earliest writing experience I have I, that I can remember is doing stuff for school where we used to have to do sent vocabulary sentences. And I'm sure you remember those types yeah. in like elementary school. And I remember one thing I would do is instead of just doing separate sentences like the dog is black, what blah, blah, blah. I would use the vocabulary words and across like the 10 sentences, I would tell a story. Yeah. And it just to keep myself interested oh, cool. more so than anything else. That's the, so that's the earliest thing I can remember. Right. So as that, far as that's concerned, that you're just making the whole, uh, like a big piece rather than one right, l- yeah, little yeah. one. <laughs> that's cool. So like, I guess in recent years, what has, uh, what was the writing experiences like that for you? Well, I think now that in like 2014, for a long time, I, I kind of switched over to music only. I wasn't writing, writing. When I was in college, I wrote a screenplay with a couple of friends. Um, and that was a good experience. I had a few manic episodes while I was doing it. And I would knock out like 60, 80 pages in a night. And oh, wow. I found that I could do that kind of thing. And, you know, in college, like as far as paper writing and all that stuff, I found that I could really, I could get that, crank that stuff out. And I, something about it I liked, but... Music was more rewarding because I think it was more immediate, and in a sense, you can yeah. you can have a little bit less discipline, you right. know, because you, especially if you're playing live, because it happens and it's there and it's done, you know. Yeah. Improvisation sort of lends itself more to that. So, in 2014, when I when I was working at um, Ocean Explorium in New Bedford, I started writing, writing again. Something was compelling me to to write more, and I started with like those essays, like that yeah. one that I just wrote and. Then I did this weird collection of like 50 short, confessional, aggressive poems. And then it sort of opened up and I started going and going and going. And I find now that I'm not a super disciplined writer where I'm not the kind of guy who's like, you must write 10 pages every day. But I find I can be productive. And a lot of that, I think, is because I eat myself alive when I write. In other words, I I edit as I write. And so that way, my first draft is usually is more is closer to being a fourth or fifth draft just because of the way that I approach it. Cool. All right, just like I guess further on into the process. Mm-hmm. Uh maybe the sort of writer's block thing made made its way uh into this question, but can you write cold or do you have to warm up or anything like that? Like I can write cold. Yeah. Cuz a lot of the work I do is in my head where okay. it's like uh like I've been working on this book for like two and a half years and it's finished in my head. I know exactly oh, wow. where it needs to go. I know all those things. It's just a matter of sitting down and shaping it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I can write cold because, in the true definition, because like I'm sitting down at a computer and spitting something out, but most of the time there's at least a half-baked idea that's already there. Yeah. So it's not so much cold because it's been worked through in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about rituals or any other practices that help you along the way? don't really have them no the things that i think help caffeine helps yeah um chewing gum helps oh wow and i think that those are just kind of add tricks yeah. you know where yeah. like anybody who <laughs> has that kind of thing chewing gum and caffeine can sort of help you 
zoom in and focus and yeah. get something going. You know, I don't really have a ritual. For a while, I liked writing in public. Now I like writing um, private nor public. It doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Would you have any advice for other writers that might? Yeah. Can't write cold. <laughs> yeah. The best advice I can give any writer is to put something down on a page. Yeah. Even yeah. if you hate it or whatever, it doesn't matter. Right. Write it down. Not to judge it. Not to judge it. Even you will judge it. It's it's like impossible not to. Okay. You know, you're like, oh, this is stupid. What the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? The 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 purpose of continually putting on paper numbs you to that, right? It's almost like working out, or it's like the first time sucks, second time sucks, but then after a while, you're sort of just used to it. Yeah. So the best advice I can give is is twofold, I guess. First one, just write something down, and the second thing is read. Yeah, yeah. Because reading. It's like anything else. How do you become a great chef? Well, by knowing food. Well, how do you know food? Well, by eating. How do you become a great musician? Well, by knowing music. How do you know music? Listen to music, right? You have to yeah, yeah. you have to put gasoline in the vehicle before it drives. Yeah. And so I think reading is very important. And reading different types of things. Mm. The conversation continues with Nick talking a bit more about editing and writer's block. When writer's block happens for me, it's because my judge is too big of a voice. Okay. You know, and it's like yeah. I can't even write something down because I'm already trying to take it apart. But the thing to remember, the beautiful thing about writing is that editing is possible. Right. But there comes a point when you have to let it go. You know, like in, in art, it's a lot of artists do things for themselves or they, they'll hold on to something until they treat it like a sacred object. You know? Yeah. There are no sacred objects, like right. period. So you, you write something, you put it out there. If you don't like it, you're allowed to change it. Yeah. You know, like the only time you're not is when legality is involved. And that's if you operate on that level. You know, if Penguin Books puts out your book and you're like, I hate that chapter. Well, <laughs> you got to wait till your contract's up. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> I had this question. Are you the writer that you strive to be? And if so, how do you feel like you got in touch with that? Mm, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. No, I don't think I am. And, um, this is kind of taking a personal question and making it big, but I don't know if if anybody is the artist that they intend to be. Yeah. I think the the moment when you sort of reach that place and you rest on your laurels a little bit, yeah. I think that that's when like you start producing shitty stuff. You know, it's like the classic. Oh, the new stuff sucks, but the early stuff was cool. You know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's sort there's sort of some kind of truth to that. Right. Um, I'm a much better writer than I was even a year ago. Yeah. And um, I think I, I sort of look more toward progress than I do destination, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'll go read something and I'm like, oh, okay, I see what I was going for, but I would have done it this way. Or I kind of feel it when I read other people's work too, yeah. where that like editing lens sort of turns up and I'm like, I would have definitely changed this. And this might be something I've read by someone else years ago and not noticed it. But I think noticing these things now, that's kind of where you can say, okay, I'd like, I actually know what I'm talking about, you know? Yeah. Because it's kind of hard to know if you know what you're talking about. What feeds your writing most? Would you, some have said that the work comes from the work. And I guess maybe you'd, you've already touched upon some of that, but. Um, well, if I really, if I really search it, it's because I think I kind of, I kind of have an overactive mind. Yeah. And um, I, I'm predisposed to making connections between things, you know, and uh, sort of existing on that level. And so for me, I think what feeds it is paying attention to things. 
Yeah. And sitting down and watching things and seeing how people interact or watching how culture is influenced by things that happen. And I, th I think that's kind of what it is. And I think out of those incidences, you can sometimes grab like a, an idea or you can grab even a phrase yeah, yeah. and sort of explore what that whole thing like means. Um, and so for me, that's, I think, one of the ways that I really feed it is just sort of by watching yeah. and listening and experiencing and playing and experimenting, you know? Right, paying attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I just got um, by Mary Oliver. Mm -hmm. And at the end of, like, I think the first essay, it said something like, attention, attention is the beginning of devotion. Totally, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was cool. And uh, I forget how... Um, of course she passed away and uh, so I finally someone had commented on a Facebook post that I made years ago and it came up in the what do you call it the memories mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I saw that comment that someone had made way back when and I had forgot I never wrote it down and she wrote Upstream by Mary Oliver and so I'm finally like catching up to that comment yeah. that might have been three years ago you know there's a great book I read for a psych class in college by Stephen Nakmanovich I think is his name okay. it's called Free Play yeah and it kind of talks about the idea of dropping into flow and creativity where you sort of, uh, when ideas are kind of coming, like I imagine in the middle of a painting, there's a point where you sort of just know what you're doing yeah, yeah. without really having to consciously explore it. And, and it comes from paying attention to what's happening yeah, yeah. directly in front of you. Totally. You know, and it's this weird relationship where you're simultaneously the, the vehicle as well as the operator, you know. And yeah, you're sort of uh, functioning as both, right? As well as as well as some outside part that's viewing both of those things happening. You know, yeah, it's it's, it's kind of strange to be in that zone or mm -hmm. role, really. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's funny that it, it, it's exciting to talk to someone who writes, um, where you write a lot more than I do, <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine I paint a little bit more than you do, but oh, I can't yeah. assume. So I can't paint crap. <laughs> So it's it's nice to hear the parallels, you know, yeah. in process. And, and like, you know, just observing is, is one thing that I think it crosses over. Mm -hmm. um, listening, paying attention, writing, playing. Writing is a lazy form of art because uh, we all are familiar with language, yeah. right? Painting, music, that requires, I think, a certain discipline of learning a new instrument to communicate ideas or, or learning a new language or learning a... A tool right or cinema that's another one yeah, you're yeah. learning these different languages and these different vocabularies and these different items to manipulate the language and vocabulary right and technique and all that stuff and um writing i th this is of course it's just my opinion but you can kind of absorb that stuff just by looking at it you know and maybe some other people feel that way with writing and music and all that and to a certain extent i guess so with music but um yeah do you think um writing is introduced earlier and, and with, with structure in, say in schools versus like say painting or music or yeah i think that's kind of what i'm saying so yeah. where it's like uh um we're predisposed to it yeah you yeah. know you know and it's a culture society views it as being more critical when yeah. in fact it's all just communication right it's all just and sometimes communication is abstract but or yeah. or it's represent representational you know um so I think it's just kind of the medium in which you choose to communicate ideas. 
Yeah. Some ideas are easier to communicate through words. Some are easier to communicate through image. Right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. My next question is, that, do you have a favorite fictional character? Hmm. Um, not one of your own. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but uh, and what makes them a favorite and why do you, can you return to them? That's a good question. Um, I have to think about it. Yeah. I have favorite fictional characters and I have favorite fictional archetypes sort of okay you know like this is a kind of a funny one but um one of my favorite versions of a hero yeah. and the idea of a hero actually comes from the recent planet of the apes franchise okay. i don't know if you're familiar with it if you watch no them. no but there's a character caesar who's sort of the central right car- arc of like those three films and um the way that they construct that story of a hero yeah. is one of my favorite types of heroes where he's not he's not a hero because he's some great person and he's not a hero because he has a certain set of powers or anything. He's a hero because he continues yeah, and, yeah. and because he has uh, a certain viewpoint about what's right and what's wrong mm-hmm. and is willing to do what he needs to do in order to protect that and whatnot. It's sort of the reluctant hero thing, yeah. you know? So to answer that question about having a favorite fictional character, for me, it's more favorite archetypes. Okay. You know, and yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the classic, um, like, Shaggy Dog Noir too, like uh, the thing that the Big Lebowski makes fun of. You know, okay. like the sort of like detective who's just kind of exposed to things and is sort of in tune with stuff, so he picks it up more than other people, yeah. and sort of gets dragged along, but isn't really, you know, it's he's not a hard nosed detective. He's kind of just seeing things and. There's some sort of drive there to sort of figure out the mystery more so than to do, you know, some heroic great thing. So yeah, I, I, there's certain archetypes that I like, um, but it's hard with fictional characters. Yeah, you know, to kind of like pick that stuff out. Are there any subjects you can always go back to in writing, uh, or one that you have yet to tackle? Yeah. Um, I talk about this a little bit in um, Taking Shits on Myself. Yeah. I rarely write love stories. Um, and I'm not sure why. Yeah. It, it's not like a conscious avoidance of it or anything like that. Uh, but it's something that I don't usually explore. Okay. I mean, I, I'm married. I love my wife. I've, I've had, you know, romantic instances in my life. But, like, for some reason, it's not something I'm compelled to explore, yeah. uh, you know, in that sort of way. Okay. For for me, a lot of the time, I like to sort of play with. I like I like the ideas of like subversion, and I like the ideas of commentary, and I I like sort of that space that um, we exist in as people. That's in between our personal desires and the desires that are expected of us, and so I, I sort of like to explore. I like perception. You know, I yeah, like exploring yeah. perception. I like exploring all that kind of stuff. And I'm also attracted to um, certain types of mystery, but bigger mysteries, not who killed this guy. Yeah. But like, why is this the way it is, if you know what I mean? You know. And so those are the places I usually go. And for some reason, I haven't really explored um, romance yet. Okay. But it's something I think about. I, I had a weird moment um, maybe half a year ago. Where I walked into a, a pizza parlor, yeah, 
and I saw a woman who's a little younger than me, maybe like she would be post-college. Um, and she was working there and she was folding pizza boxes and she looked happy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I had this weird feeling where it was like I saw that sort of being happy with um, what is traditionally perceived as mediocrity. Yeah, yeah. You know, that happiness of just sort of like, I just want to fold pizza boxes. Right. There's nothing else I want to do. I mean, I'm a teacher, so it's not like I'm in the middle of some giant rat race. But I yeah. think just seeing that was kind of refreshing, and it felt very romantic to me to sort of pursue something that's just not pursuing anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I found something romantic in that. So I've thought about writing something that has that same kind of feeling. That's but... very visual to me. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's we're waiting. I'm going to wait for that for, from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. No beginnings, no ends. Maybe go with that chair, man. Go with that chair, man. Uh, is it heavy uh, stuff, man? Heavy stuff, man. <laughs> Will it blow me away? Would you say timeless or timely, in your opinion, is most relevant or important right now as a written piece? Timeless. Timeless? Always more important than timely, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. The best art could have come from any time. Yeah. Save for, you know, technological advances and any practical stuff like that. But you think of the greatest pieces of art, whatever it is, and yeah. it sort of speaks to something more human rather than that's so 2019. <laughs> you know, like I think that that kind of, of course, commentary is important um, to some degree. And it's, it's great to do both. Yeah. But I think ultimately what matters are the things that hold up over time. Yeah. You know, so looking at humor, my favorite comedians are the guys who write jokes rather than the guys who just trash on pop culture and politics yeah yeah you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. a joke is a joke and a joke will be funny for all time right because it's the way that the words are constructed and it's the where the punchline is and the sense of expectation and you know it's playing to Delivery. like a, yeah yeah you know it's like it's it's that's the stuff that i think is sort of yeah timeless always cool do you have any jokes offhand um they're all stolen. <laughs> you know, they're all stolen jokes. Okay. <laughs> I love jokes and I love hearing them, but um, they're mostly stolen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of any. There may be three in my head, but they're right. all, yeah. Uh, probably some eight-year-old told me. Right. <laughs> do you have a favorite word? Oh, favorite word. What do you mean by favorite? One that you like to use often, if possible? There was a period early in my writing where I liked using the word vomit. Okay. And part of the reason I like using that word is because it, somehow it feels 
saying the word yeah feels like what throwing up looks like <laughs> yeah and so i i that was a funny one for a while to yeah. kind of use that um but i don't i don't really think i do there's certain vocal tics that i'll have i find in writing and part of the, i think part of the goal of being like a, a good editor is eliminating them you know seeing similar phrases in this hundred pages that you've written and yeah, yeah. blasting them out of there right. in a narrative sense. If it's a character who's repeating the phrases, that's oh, a good cool. thing. But if it's a, if it's a narrative thing where you're kind of, you keep relying on these same phrases, got to get rid of them. Yeah. That's so now, um, do you ever, like you said, vomit and mm. is, do you have a picture of the reader saying it and think that'd be fun for them to say it repeatedly? Or? Sort of. And yeah. I, I, I do this weird thing in a lot of my writing. I've talked about this, um, like I've written a decent amount of poetry and yeah. it, poetry is not something I really read a ton of and it's not really something I'm like super interested in myself but I've always kind of viewed poetry as um, short pieces and I view poetry as being interactive where yeah. sometimes when you write something to be read in front of other people um, I think that's kind of a fun thing where part of the you, you're saying these things to, to sort of instigate a response yeah, you know, or sometimes what I do with the words is what I say is not actually all as important as how what I say makes you feel. So part of the reason to say vomit is not because I'm trying to talk about somebody spewing. Yeah, it's more so that I'm trying to make you feel a strange way by hearing the word vomit and picturing it. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's it's sort of antagonistic sometimes. Okay. So I think using words as weapons sort of can be kind of fun. Where, you know, there's certain things that are just uncomfortable to feel and to think about and that just don't feel good. Yeah. And, and I think sort of putting that in front of somebody and forcing them to reckon with it uh, is half the fun sometimes. Now, that's not all the time. Some of the pieces are that way. Some of the pieces are not that way. Yeah. It's having like sort of a, a tool bag, I guess. No? Yeah. Yeah. You just yeah. throw it out there and you're like, whoa, you know, I wouldn't expect that kind of thing. <laughs> or hard turns, you know, you go from, which I do in poetry a lot, where you go from like a... Uh, you're in this one place that seems comfortable, that seems thoughtful, that seems deep, and then you go very hard into a distressing image. Yeah. And you sort of, that switch that happens when you go from one to the other, they color each other. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Like a compliment or like on the color wheel, like let's go there. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can sort of, they color each other and it can make you feel funny or it can make you feel, Yeah. you know. Like would you say like combination or? Yeah, combination I think, yeah. yeah. You know, I've been in the background. I've been thinking about favorite words. Another word I'd like to say is isinglass. That's a word I like. Isinglass. 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 Yeah, it's it's a word that uh, I believe it comes from fish bladders, and it's used in like brewing beer. Okay. Um, but isinglass. Hmm. Um, would you say now? A late night reading is that a poem that does that for you? Like, because you, I feel like you start off with, say, for lack of a better term, something that's not so pleasant or positive, mm -hmm. and then it gets positive, and then it gets negative again. Mm -hmm. Is that is that as similar to? That's kind of a conscious thing I do sometimes. Okay, you know, as a sort of lead you. It's like bookended by. Yeah. Yeah. It'll lead you through both. I mean, it, for me, uh, that's a lot of my experience in life is sort of that way. Yeah. You know, um, I have. I have mood disorder, you know, okay. 
and I suffer I've suffered from depression for a while. I've had manic episodes. Yeah. Um, nothing so bad as to totally derail my life, but right. I mean, you know, to derail some relationships and whatnot. And yeah. Um, so I think part of the part of the reason to sort of bake that into some of the pieces is to kind of relay that experience, you know, right. and, and because it can happen in an instant. Like I, yeah. I've had so many experiences where I'll, I'll have to go somewhere, like to go to a, a, a store with my wife to pick something up and it's fine. I'm not in any particular mood, but I'll see like a little girl, like looking through the toy aisle yeah. and it feels so good to see a kid like excited about something. Yeah. Right. But then a second later having not even a second, less than a second, having the realization that what's happening in that moment is, yeah, this little girl is so excited about this toy, yeah. but by being excited about the toy, she's falling into a trap. And it's a trap that's been built economically. It's right. been built by culture. It's a, it's just a dopamine dumping system, right? Where when you're a four year old, you love this toy, you want this yeah, toy, yeah. you get a job to go buy yourself the iPhone when you're 25, you know. And it's just, I think that that moment where understanding the joy and pleasure of the innocence, but then also understanding that that joy and pleasure was put there by somebody for nefarious reasons. Yeah. So yeah. that way they'll participate, right? You know. Yeah. And so, I think. Um, that that duality, that light and dark, sort of at the same exact time, always. Right. Um, I, that's very hard for me to live with. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the reason why I sort of bake that in is because it's they're both there. It's hard to talk about one without the other, and they both cast light or darkness onto each other, which then makes it either lighter or darker. You know. Right. I know I printed it here somewhere. Did I give it to you? I have, uh, yep, I got it right here. Okay, let me make sure I didn't. Okay, so let me, it's, um, okay, so we're going to have Nick read Late Night Reading. Late Night Reading. Matter. A particle. The thing in itself. The ding on sitch. Rendered as a momentary image. Noumenon turned phenomenon. What is it? Irrelevant? Immaterial? A subjective ideal? A metaphysical misnomer caught somewhere in the tug-of-war between nominalism and realism? Am I an image? A collection of images? A hero wearing one of a thousand masks? One thousand dings? One thousand sitches? Or am I the villain? The nebulous negative of the hero's ambition? The will to subversion? The nagging reminder, the sower of doubt in the monomyth, the force of nature which resists, pure opposition, the white space which shapes the darkened silhouette. Or is it innocent? A child sitting on top of his toy box with a wooden gun, playing keep away from his friends, with his finger tickling the edge of the first brick in a long line of dominoes, their shadow looming over a small struggling neighborhood, the people starving milling about as they pray for a savior or for destruction. Is there pleasure or is it illusory? Is my love, in truth, just coping? Do I not feel the heaving breath of my partner as she dreams? Do I not allow a cool summer breeze to caress my aching body and purify me? Do I nurse the image or destroy it? A distant light, bright and twinkling, hanging in the sky thousands of light years away. Help me. I'm thirsty. My lips are dry. I consume too much salt. 
I'm so very thirsty. I'm so very tired. I must go to sleep. Thank you. That one, uh, just this morning when I read it again, brought me to a Radiohead song. And, um, and oddly enough, because I just saw Tom York get interviewed yesterday on YouTube, um, Steve Colbert. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if somehow <laughs> that, that did it, but anyway, I'm sure it helped. Uh, on the OK Cupid album, mm -hmm. Cupid. Wow, that's that, I'm okay, gonna do that over. <laughs> Where's my mind? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need a date. Yeah. Anybody listening? <laughs> the OK Computer album, mm -hmm. and the song is called "Fitter Happier," mm -hmm. and something about reading late night reading again brought me to this song. So mm -hmm. I just wrote down some lyrics. I, I'll read them. Sure. Um, Fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable not drinking too much. And then, of course, I skip ahead a little bit. No paranoia. Careful to all animals. Never washing spiders down the plug hole. Keeping contact with old friends. And I guess at that point, like, it, it's... Maybe you're building upon... Building up too much on yourself, like, the the rules to live by. You're like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm checking and I'm okay. And then there's more at a better pace slower more calculated and then we have like it tilting a little bit like no chance of escape self-employed now which i guess goes back depends on how you look at that but mm -hmm. and then like the end of it the very end of the song calm fitter healthier more productive a pig in a cage on antibiotics like the way that ends and like musically mm -hmm. and everything it's like holy whoa yeah <laughs> you know um I just, I don't know. I, and I haven't heard that song in forever, but yeah, yeah, it's an impact, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and just the way that uh, something about it, like, you know, brought, mm -hmm. brought those two together for me. But yeah, that's a, a I like that idea too. Yeah. You know, that like the attractive, uh, the attractive possibility versus the um, harsh reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like in order to be, it's all systems-based thinking, right? It's like, this is what I want to be, or this is what I'm supposed to be, and when I do this, I'll be happy, or when I do that, I'll be happy. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I Like, I don't really think uh, happiness exists. Yeah. I don't really th I don't really think anything exists, you know? And, and so sometimes when we're chasing things, I think we're just chasing our own tails. Yeah. And I think, like, Eastern philosophy really has a lot of that shit down pat when they talk about emptiness or they talk about um, sort of reacting to your own environment and that's just it. Yeah. And the rest is kind of what it is and navigating that stuff. So I definitely understand that and um, okay. appreciate the comparison. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, it was a nice journey so early in the morning with some coffee, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, to, to do that, I love to do that. You mm -hmm. know, I, I like when it happens. I don't know if I do it, but... Mm -hmm. it, it somehow comes together. Yeah, yeah re <laughs> you know? recognizing those things. That yeah, sort of and it just it just clicked. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I was I don't even think I was listening to music at the time. I might have been, but um, but it was instrumental and not you mm -hmm. know yeah not only, anything yeah no lyrics so mm -hmm. it didn't influence it that way. And then all of a sudden Radiohead came into my mind. So um, now well, it, you say Eastern philosophies. Is that what you said? Yeah. Now is there one in particular that you say dive into a lot or or just um, have or not really? I mean, I'm like a I'm a 
I'm a fake as much as anybody else. Oh, like, yeah. you know, I study, I study some of it in college and I'm familiar with this and familiar with that. Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert in like yeah. anything. Just, um, just certain takes on like, I, I like certain Buddhist ideas, you yeah, know, yeah. and, and I like, um, I like some of the things that were influenced by old Buddhist ideas and like, like Alan Watts, obviously, you know, yeah, somebody, yeah. And, and he's sort of really influenced by that, um, emptiness. Yeah. Cause he brought that back here in a sense. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I like that stuff. And I think, I think if there is an ultimate truth to reality, it's probably close to that idea that there is no truth to reality. Yeah. You know, it's that, that whole paradox paradox of just like, um, feedback loops there is everything because there is nothing there is nothing because there is everything you know infinite possibility because nothing's happening or nothing's happening because chaos exists you know it's like it's i think it's all just perspective yeah well you know some might think that that brings unrest but or like not not peace but like you gotta accept that in a way i've got this weird paradoxical mindset like if I look back on my life, I, I would never have called myself an anxious guy. I've always called myself a depressed guy. But okay. the truth of the matter is that depression and anxiety exist so close to one another, and they cloak themselves in each other's, you know, where you think yeah. you're depressed, but actually you're just anxious. And if I look back on my life, I think that a lot of depression might have been fueled by big anxieties. You know, I remember being a kid, like, sitting on a trampoline in my parents' back, in my uh, grandparents' backyard. Yeah. Like... I don't have any brothers or sisters, unfortunately. It would be myself alone at night looking yeah. at the sky on a trampoline, and I remember feeling empty. And I remember having an anxiety about ever finding someone to share something with yeah. and, and this hope of, like, a fulfillment that supposedly is there. Society tells me it's there. Right. My parents were married. My grandparents were married. You know, th- that that sort of imposed fear or imposed anxiety where you're like, it's got to be something that'll make me not feel this way. Yeah. And so it was, uh, was sharing the important part of that, like the most important? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I so for it. me, it was, I think it was kind of like a, it is an assumption where it's like, I think if I could share this or if there was someone here yeah. with me to have, you know, almost that, that possessive thing that you have when you're younger, as far as relationships where it's like, I want something to be mine or whatever, you know, or, yeah, like, yeah. or to have something with me to sort of experience these other things. And that feeling of emptiness viewing it as a symptom rather than as the truth <laughs> yeah, yeah and so i think as i've gotten older what i've what i've sort of realized to answer your question about chaos is that idea over time has developed and i get anxiety or i feel depressed when i think about having to make certain plans but what actually makes me feel good is knowing that at any time everything might end yeah yeah a a rogue planet might fly across the galaxy and not. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but no. Yeah, no, but but I would laugh too. But yeah. at any oh, time, look here it comes. yeah, yeah, and blammo, we're gone. Yeah. Nothing mattered. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And I think that there's a certain freedom for me, and right. of course, some people might think I'm crazy that like the end of the world is a comforting idea, and that it can happen at any time. And for me, it's freeing. Yeah. And for me, like it gives you the opportunity to kind of find meaning. You know, not believing in a god allows me to not have to serve one you know or or if there is a god believing that he's just kind of fucking around and and we can just do whatever we want the whole the whole point is to sort of just see and feel and find your own stuff you know yeah it's like that old analogy that we are the universe experiencing itself you know um 
I can kind of buy that too, but I think there's a freedom in that rather than no meaning is freedom rather than, you know, rather than, um, well, go, no, go, I, no, no, I said no meaning is freedom rather than terrifying, I think is what I was saying. No meaning is freedom rather, rather than, than terrifying. terrifying yeah. yeah. Well, cause, I mean, you could let certain things like that could be a cancer, you know, that eating away at you, that belief, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, um, nihilist? No. No. Because I think it's worth trying. Okay. And so it's, <laughs> it's contradictory, right? So it's like if I was a nihilist, I wouldn't be a teacher. I would be floating around the yeah. world doing whatever I want at all What time. about? Yeah, and I think that it's worth trying. And yeah, that's yeah. my choice. Right. Like, I don't, I, and I think that, I think everybody deserves to have that realization on their own. Yeah. And I think, um, I would like to do everything I can to help people have that realization. Now, yeah. I recognize that I live with a certain amount of privilege because I've been able to have that realization, right? Like, I don't come from money or anything, but I was able to do well enough in school to go to college. Yeah. You know, I'm able to, I have a full-time job. I have a car. Like I have a certain degree of privilege. Um, so I'm allowed to sit and think about these things. Yeah. Everybody should be, because I think if there is a purpose, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And, but there probably isn't, but that's my best guess. And so I, I would like to do whatever I can to sort of help that. Yeah. And I think oppression is wrong. And I think um, abusing other people for your own gain is wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, we all deserve the same opportunity on a basic level. And that's what I think. And that's that's the reason I'm not a nihilist ultimately, because nihilism can very easily dip into um, purposefully hurting others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, I, I don't even really understand that. It's just mm-hmm. that... For some reason, uh, this morning that popped into my head. For some reason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with with the whole Radiohead yeah. thing and that, you know. I, it's but re- I wouldn't say that. I, I I think they care because otherwise they wouldn't make music. Right. You know, it's um, it's riding a certain level. I think. Yeah. You know, I think that. Um, I think cynicism is dangerous. Yeah. Even though I'm entirely cynical, you know, yeah. I think cynicism can dip into. Uh, the danger zone. And I think ultimately people like our terrible administration right now, this yeah. current president and these type of folks are ultimately cynical because their viewpoint is like, all right, well, everybody's of this certain social caste are going to get to hop on the ship. Everybody else is just going to drown and I don't care because there's no helping them because it's all pointless anyway. Let me make some money and yeah, die. Yeah. You know, yeah. to me that's cynical and nihilist. Right. But I think it's also, it's braver to be cynical and say, nah, everybody deserves the chance yeah. to become cynical themselves. <laughs> <laughs> we have arrived at the segment where Nickel Blank talks about his sound collage project, or album, I should say, and it's growing, Make Jazz. assumptions we dig we dig we dig and every other week we come up with a new fucking assumption you're gonna go to mars now mars for what who gives a fuck about mars i'm sitting there going this is a fugazi i've been working on this project called make jazz yeah which is spelled m-a-k-e-j-a-z um 
and the the name came from a trip that I went on with a few of my friends into into the Hudson Valley, uh, and we were playing Scrabble one night, and one of my friends those were the letters that he received sort of <laughs> so we found it very funny yeah and i we had taken a picture of it so i just used that as the as the name of it. but it comes from a project i had done maybe a year and a half ago called demolition and salvage mm-hmm. and that came from a walk through the new england demolition and salvage warehouse in new bedford where i was looking at like the crap the detritus and ephemera and whatever else you want to call it that gets thrown into a warehouse like that over time that we can sort of dig through and find value and like repurpose into something in our own homes or just that whole sort of idea. And I'd gone home that night and gone into my, opened up my computer and realized I had files and files and files of audio stuff that was like half used or undone or I had my own collection of crap in, in files. So I decided to repurpose them and turn it into this whole thing. Um, So I had done that. And I really liked it, and I'm proud of it. Um, it's definitely more, it's not like you go and you bop your head to a pop song. You know, I do that with other stuff, but yeah, it's it's a little more experimental, sort of. A lot of It's all samples, basically. And, right. Um, so recently, <clears throat> when I had finally got myself a new computer, um, new laptop with, like, new recording software and everything, I decided I wanted to sort of dip back into that sort of stuff again. So I went through, like, folders that I had and videos that i remembered and um started to put together a new collection of stuff which is what make jazz is uh and the way i thought about it this time because it's even more directly sample based and a little it's a little easier to listen to than the other ones um i thought of it as a radio show where if if you know in some bizarro world if a radio show if radio was used the way it could be then DJ sets wouldn't be just about putting songs together with similar BPM. It would be about combining sounds and music and, and uh, you know, for repurposing them for some other kind of goal, yeah. you know. And so kind of using, they all have themes and there's like jokes baked into it and that whole kind of thing. So yeah. it's, it's just kind of been a fun thing I've done recently as a break from other stuff, you know. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I've done a little bit of that myself, but not so like well thought out, I guess. Mm, you thank know? you, yeah. Right off the bat, I think I wrote you a little review on mm-hmm. uh, Bandcamp and the production of it I thought was like really good. And of course, hearing Alan Watts pop pop up, you know, it doesn't hurt, you know? Yeah. And there's another cameo on track three, which I won't mention because I don't want people to, I want them to experience, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, if that makes any sense. It's a little tease, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. And that, that could be, uh, I don't know, I guess there, you know, speaking of my question about timely and timeless, there's, mm. there's a lot of both in, in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, Some of the people that show up and, you know, what they have to say, even if it's just, you know, five seconds. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, like there's, in the first track, I sample both Alan Watts and uh, uh, Joey Coco Diaz. I don't know if you know this guy. He's I like don't a, think so. He's like this. Uh, stand, I guess he's a stand-up comedian, but he's he's so he's such like a parody of a stand-up comedian. Yeah. He's like the old guy with a gravelly smoker's voice who just tells crazy vulgar stories. Oh, I okay. Yeah. It's coming back to me. Yeah. I don't know him per, uh, previously, right. but but check him out because you'll be you'll get it. But putting those people next to each other. Yeah. You know that's also like part of it <laughs> as well. And like I think Terrence McKenna I have in the first one too. 
um and it all opens with like the national geographic (laughs) so it's all sort of like it's you know meant in that same demolition of salvage way where it's yeah. like all that sh- all kinds of shit no matter what it is yeah it's just thrown on top of each other and then you can right. kind of dig through it and find because like in a lot of ways that that warehouse was people that were gutting houses and right. you know redoing stuff and there'd mm-hmm. be an archway that you like maybe somebody else wouldn't have a use for that mm-hmm. someone comes in and like drops to their knees it's i found it <laughs> that's what i mean so it's that weird sort of thing yeah, yeah. and so i just that, that was kind of that that was like the angle yeah know? And like that, that Coco Diaz sample is, uh, is I, I paired it with, um, a slowed down version of, uh, this song Crazy Horses by, uh, the Osmonds. Okay. But when you slow it down, it goes from being like a Osmond song and it sounds like stoner rock. (laughs) But then you take, you take that and you chop it up the way that I did and you put this guy with this gravelly voice over it and suddenly it sounds like a hardcore punk song. You yeah. know, so it's like that kind of stuff where it was playing with these different ideas, but everything sort of talks about the first one's kind of about outer space. The second one's kind of about love. The third one's yeah. kind of about sex. And it's just yeah. like playing all those ideas together. All right. Yeah, it's an interesting little album, I guess you could... Yeah, I'm still working you know. on it. It's one of Are you going to add more tracks to it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. It's one of those things where it's just like... So you got to keep an eye on this then. Yeah, I have... Us, me. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Listeners. file with a bunch of like uh, tracks and stuff in there that I, you know, I go through and I'm like, oh, this is good. I can loop this or I can chop this up or yeah. slow it down, speed it up, whatever, and figure out all that kind of stuff. It's just cool. like a it's like a playground, you know? Yeah. Nice. It's fun to do that. Next up, Nick talks about some of the groups and events revolving around poetry and theater productions coming up in the next few weeks. First off, he talks about Anomaly. Listen in. Yeah, for about a year yeah. at the Co-Creative Center in New Bedford, yeah. uh, Dina Hayden has had uh, myself, Sarah Mulvey, and uh, Andy Tedesco yeah. come and sort of help do basically an open mic for ideally for like poetry based kind of stuff yeah but like i said before i'm not like a i don't think of myself as a poet i think of myself who writes short pieces so i tend to say short pieces rather than just poetry um but yeah so it's it's on aha nights um people come out for a couple hours sign up and you can read your stuff yeah sort of in front of people Right. And this past June, we put on an event at the Roach Jones Duff House in New Bedford, this like old, beautiful, historic home um, for the summer solstice. Okay. And we had like 50, 60 people show up for oh, a poetry cool. open mic, which is, poetry is a hard sell. Yeah. You know, it's not exactly like everybody's cup of tea, you know. So <laughs> yeah. um, to have that many people come up and support local stuff and to, to hear so many different types of work from so many different people. Yeah. Uh, is like a really, really inspiring and enriching experience. Right. You know, and of course, there's some that you're going to like more than others, but that's the nature of things. And that's the fact that we're able to do that in beautiful historic homes in the city and yeah. at places like the Co-Creative Center um, is a really great thing. So that whole group is called Anomaly. And you guys are on Instagram? Yep, they're, they're on Instagram. Um Sarah runs the Instagram. She also runs the Domesticated Primate Instagram. Um, oh, cool. She's good with that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I get too cynical <laughs> about advertising. Is that word again? <laughs> like about advertising and all that. And if you were to go through the Domesticated Primate posts, I'm a thousand percent positive. You could say, oh, that was a Nick post. That oh. was a Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
So you mentioned domesticated primate. Yeah, yeah. So it's this little publishing house thing that I sort of put together and run. Um, we've put out almost ten books. And yeah. By the end of twenty twenty, we'll put out at least five more. Cool. Um, <clears throat> I've been in a heavy editing phase with a bunch of stuff that's been given to me, um, and I do a lot of art design. I do majority of the editing. I do the layout stuff. I do all that. So it takes a while. Um, and we've just been putting it together. Sarah helps out a lot. Uh, and I'm excited about some of the releases. I have a few poetry collections that are coming out. Yeah. Um, another one's going to be a collection of three novellas um, by three different authors. Um, we also have uh, a few other things. Some of them I'm not quite ready to talk about yet because I'm not yeah. sure if they're going to follow through sort of thing. You know how okay. artists are. <laughs> um, Timing. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've released romance novels. Uh yeah, one not too long ago, right? Yep, not too long ago, Set of Strings. Uh, we released a collection of poetry by Josh Botello, which is, it wasn't really a collection of poetry as much as it is one long, 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 long piece. Yeah. A lot of dream imagery, that kind of stuff. We released a no little novel of mine called Other People. We released um, a one-act play that I did with a photographer, Brandon Cabral, and an artist, Megzi. Um, released a couple collections of short horror stories which are kind of in like weird fiction horror, you know? Yeah. Some are more H.P. Lovecraft, and some are more toward the modern, like, weird fiction sort of angle, but all kinds of stuff. Cool. That's uh, nice to hear about that. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. It's it's like, tough, and I'm really bad at getting stuff out to the mail on time. It's take me a month sometimes. Orders? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It's just because it's just me. And yeah, so yeah. It makes it kind of hard to do all that plus that sometimes, especially yeah. if... Because I, I, I try not to keep a lot of stock. Yeah. So that way we're not losing money because I don't make money on this entity at all. It's right. I run it essentially like a nonprofit where any profit goes back into either back into the um, publishing process or to the artists. Right. I don't take anything. So it can just make it kind of tough where sometimes, oh, there's a back order. Oh, we need to make more covers because we also do the releases that coincide with the anomaly events. Okay. And those have, both of them have had hand hand done covers so if yep. we have a bunch of orders come in oh we're out of these covers we want to try and get some more you know so it's like a it's tough i'm sure with it's a full -time. Like, but i think people understand that I would yeah hope, you know it's tough with a full-time gig you know yeah. you get the occasional email from somebody who has no idea what the hell they're talking about but it's all right <laughs> deal with it yeah are there any other events coming up that uh you can let us know about yeah or? so on uh on december 13th i work with an organization in new bedford called the collective um, they're a theater, mostly theater, but sort of performing arts group. They've done stuff with live music and live mm -hmm. readings and um, a lot of a lot of plays. And we did an original acts event. So yeah. myself and one other playwright got together and we wrote original pieces. And we've actually been working with the cast and the directors the whole time, kind of like what they actually do in New York City and the bigger theater areas where the playwright comes in and works with the director to shape the play the way that they want it to be. Um, so we did that, and on December 13th, it's going to be at Gallery X in New Bedford. It's oh, cool. going to be a play by me and a play by another guy, one of the guys who actually runs the collective, Kevin Mitchell. Um, we both wrote a play, and yeah. they're both going to be acted out on that night. Right. So that's something I'm very excited for. It's a, a play I wrote called Fido, which... Yeah. Um, um, I was very happy with. Yeah, I, I, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I read it through it, and 
I definitely laughed out loud. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot of stuff about uh, like relationship dynamics. Yeah, in in um, in sort of a a hot moment where things kind of come to a head. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you for uh, giving me privy to oh, the script. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. I think we're actually probably going to publish mine and his um, together, yeah. sort of like um, how Samuel French does it. I don't know if you've ever seen their stuff. But what they'll do is they include, like on the first page, the people who acted the plays for the first time and the location that it was done and yeah. sort of as like a commemorative thing because I think this is something that's going to be going on in the future, like having playwrights come in and workshop original works. Yeah. You know, um, Kevin and his partner, Joe, Joanna Tomas, are the guys who run it, and um, they both have a lot of experience with that. And uh, it's been fun. Cool. to kind of get it all together yeah now are you did you say you're working with a director or yeah so those guys are they're producers and directors okay and um so kevin's directing mine joe is directing kevin's oh and um so kevin and i work together on on my play with the actors so i'll go yeah. i'll go to the rehearsals and watch them workshop the characters and while we go through like oh this line might not be working like it doesn't sound right coming out of this guy's mouth like maybe yeah. we need to switch it around or make this thing happen before this thing or whatever yeah but, it's so. it's so interesting to like craft what people do you know yeah man uh theater is a crazy thing like yeah. i never really was into it the only theater stuff i'd ever read was like stuff like samuel beckett yeah you know where it's like it's important to see it live but you can kind of study it in a lit class too um and that was kind of the stuff i knew but then my wife acts so going to see her stuff and getting involved and starting to understand it more it opened my eyes to acting and it opened my eyes to theater as like a as a performance art yeah and i can't recommend it enough like if yeah. someone hasn't seen a play like as an older guy everybody went to plays you know in <laughs> elementary school but yeah. as an older person more like going to see even a one-act play it's a unique experience that's yeah. very very enriching and i would suggest you come out and see ours on december 13th yeah. at gallery x do it. I'm like horrible at, at, at like ending an interview, mm -hmm. and I like try to disclaimer that with everyone that yeah. I talk to, even like even on Skype. You know, it's yeah. like okay, uh, how do I say? Like, yeah, thank well, you. I'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice click and yeah. Skype call. You know, but well, Nick, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your projects with us. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. Be prepared to space out. Thanks to Nick LeBlanc for sharing so much, both about his projects and those centered in New Bedford. I hope you enjoyed this. So do look Nick up and his work with Domesticated Primate. Also check out the Co-Creative Center, Anomaly, The Collective NB, and Gallery X for all things happening in the next few weeks. For more info, check out these projects on Instagram and please visit the show notes at ottakes, A-H-T-T-A-K-E-S dot blogspot dot com for a list of names mentioned in the interview. And don't forget the sweet sounds of make jazz. You can check out Nick's sound collages in full over on Bandcamp. Let's close with some of the sounds from his project. This has been Ot Takes. Thanks for stopping in.
you go far enough and you actually come back to where you began. Just like the ant goes round the board, eventually retraces where it was before. But it's got no edges to it. Space is curved. Limited size, but no boundaries. no edges, no beginnings, no ends. Heavy girl with that chair, man. Yeah, with that chair, man. Uh, well, is it heavy uh, stuff, well, is it man? Heavy <laughs> stuff, man? <laughs> Will it blow me away? of human life, its systems of communication and systems of control are extended more and more and more in just the same way, for example, that by assimilating the minerals out of the soil and the rays out of the sunlight, a plant like a fern grows and grows and grows and extends its form. And in this way, its organization prevails. <laughs> 